This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. My guest on today's show is Dr. Wendy J. Dunn, award-winning author and historian. Wendy is the author of three amazing Tudor-era books, Dear Heart, How Like You This, The Light in the Labyrinth, and Falling Pomegranate Seeds, The Duty of Daughters. On today's episode, Wendy and I will discuss the characters of her books, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Thomas Wyatt, and Catherine Carey. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank the folks who became new patrons since the last episode. Kathy H., Rebecca G., and Stephanie S., as well as a special shout-out to Reagan H. for increasing her pledge. Thank you so much for your support. Your support and the support of all of my patrons has meant the world to me. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Dynasty. So without further ado, I welcome Dr. Wendy J. Dunn to the show. Wendy, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Rebecca. You have written about some of the key figures of Tudor courts, including Anne Boleyn, Thomas Wyatt, Catherine Carey, and Catherine of Aragon. What inspired you to choose them as central characters for your books? Oh, they're fascinating characters. Um, with regards to Thomas Wyatt, I don't think I had a choice. He um, he grabbed my imagination as a teenager and just wouldn't let me go until I started to write about him. Um, yes, he took me over. So that was my first experience of ever being taken over by a character. Um they're all very, very fascinating characters. With Catherine Carey, um, of course, she's one of these people that we don't know very much about in her early years. So there's a lot of guesswork for a writer to latch on to and um, for a fiction writer um, to have those sort of gaps to fill. It's, it's wonderful for our imagination to construct story. And, of course, I love Anne Boleyn and I love Catherine of Aragon. I, I'm very devoted to them and um, I I really wanted to hold the more I've uh, the more I've lived through my life the more I want to hold Henry VIII to account for his treatment of the women that he married and um, yeah I I can't like him and I, yeah so anyway it's my effort to um, be there for them and um, give voice to them and tell their stories. Yeah. So does that answer your question, Rebecca? (laughs) It does. And and in case people aren't familiar with your books, you had Dear Heart, How Like You This. You had The Light in the Labyrinth, which is my all-time favorite, and Falling Pomegranate Seeds, um, book one, The Duty of Daughters. I hope you liked them all, darling. Oh, I did. I did. But, uh, you know, The Light in the Labyrinth, I always tell people that book was one of the very few books that made me cry at the end. 
Oh, that's oh, I'm, I'm so pleased it made you cry. I love it when um, readers tell me that my books make them cry. <laughs> right. It just it struck such an emotion. So it was brilliant. I loved it. But for those who are unfamiliar, can you give us a quick blurb about the premise of each of those books? Well, Dear Heart is a story about love and the cost of love. And it's it's it was me mulling about what is love and how it can control our life. And Tom, in my imagination, um, carried the torch for Anne Boleyn all his life. And um, it appears that there's a suggestion, and I read this years ago, that they were kin. But when I first wrote that book, um, I didn't have the internet I was reliant on books that I could find in the library. In my local library, there was nothing on Sir Thomas Wyatt. So I had to go to the university in Melbourne and beg them to find whatever that they had. And there wasn't that much that they actually could offer me as well. Um, so the story to me is is really about the cost of love and and also I wanted to write a story about a man who was so so in love with a woman that it sort of controlled his life um I, I kind of wanted to have a man that was so so obsessed with this this idea of this woman in his life um yeah so it was it is the core of that story is about you know, the love story and also about him learning at the end that, you, you know, you can't let someone obsess you as much as he did with Anne Boleyn. He had to, he had to sort of let it go to live his own life. So in a sense, it's probably a little bit of an unhealthy love story as well. So there was those sort of deeper meanings in that story. So I really enjoyed giving voice to Tom. Um, we used to have arguments about the direction of the story, which was quite fascinating for me. And that was my first experience, too, to discover that writers can have these really amazing moments where um, they write things when, when rationally they think this is not right. And then they discover later that, that yes, it happened. Uh, I can give you an example of that in, in um, Tom's story is that Tom wanted me to set up, and we used to have these discussions, you know, verbally. In my mind, I used to imagine Tom being there saying, this is what how I want you to write this story. And I would say, no, I'm not really, I don't want to go that way. So Tom wanted me to set him up with two courtesans in Rome um, and by the Pope and whatever. And and I thought this just sounds very cliche to have him set up with two prostitutes in Rome. Um, and I wasn't very comfortable with having Tom with a prostitute in Rome. What is he going to do with this prostitute in Rome? I didn't know where he was leading me. Um, mm, when uh, <laughs> I know what he's going to do with her. <laughs> Well, he didn't because I, I, at least I sort of, because he had that obsession with Anne Boleyn and because the prostitute reminded him of Anne, he, he treated her with respect um, in the story. But while this, this sort of argument with Tom was going on, 
um, I couldn't write one word because I thought, no, I don't want to write this scene because it, it's just not me to have this sort of contrived. It just sound, sounded to me too contrived. Finally, I realised he had to have his way with me as a writer. So I thought, all right, fair enough. We're going to have two prostitutes knocking on your door and we'll see where it will go. And and Tom actually ended up playing his lute to the uh, to his prostitute while the other English man enjoyed um, the wares of the other prostitute. Mm. Um, so later... Not that long afterwards, after writing that scene, I found a history book about, uh, it was a book of poetry about Tom, which had a, um, a quite, a, quite a very interesting biography of him at the beginning. And there, lo and behold, it said that while he was in Rome as a diplomat, because he was a diplomat, um, the Pope sent two courtesans to them to entertain them. And I just thought, this is weird. Um, it really happened um, to the historical Tom that he was entertained by two prostitutes while he was in Rome waiting to see the Pope. So that's, those sort of moments in writing are amazing and very magical and very, yeah, any, I think most historical fiction writers have had those moments where they, end, they write something and then they end up finding that it actually did happen. So that was quite interesting. Um, I actually started my Catherine story after Dear Heart was published. I actually was very interested in Catherine of Aragon after researching Dear Heart. And I thought I'd like to write a trilogy about Catherine of Aragon. And I started it and I actually got an agent after Dear Heart was published so I had the first um, version of Falling Pomegranate Seeds, The Duty of Daughters, with an agent, and she failed to find a publisher for it. And after the 12th rejection, she said she wasn't going to send it out again. And also I was getting the feedback from the publishers as well, which was great. But, you know, I was getting completely destroyed also at the same time because I'd spent such a long time writing this version of Falling Pomegranate Seeds. The um, point of view that I wrote the first book in was through a child's point of view and it just didn't work. And so by the 12th rejection, I faced the reality that I would have to rewrite a whole book through the point of view of an adult character. Luckily, um, I had latched on to um, Beatrice Galindo, who turned out to be the point of view character that carried the um, published version of that novel. But I was so, so heartbroken that that original version didn't work. I couldn't face doing the rewrite. I decided to, um, yeah, go back to uni and do my master's and hopefully get into PhD, which I did, um, and start another book entirely, which was the one that you love, about Catherine Carey. So that was my PhD artefact. And that story came about because years ago, um, at the same time I was writing Dear Heart, I came across this story that Catherine Carey had witnessed 
Anne Boleyn's execution. And then I looked at the, her uh, birth year that they had on that little story, and it, she would have been 12. And I thought to myself, that doesn't make any sense. To be entrusted to be a witness at someone's execution was um, to be entrusted with a great responsibility. You were not only there to witness that person making good death, but you were there to um, clean up, uh, well, the women who were on the scaffold with Anne Boleyn carried her body and her head down to be entombed. And I thought, even though 12 in the Tudor times, as we know, was a time that girls were regarded as women. I felt that 12 was still too young for someone to be given the responsibility to hold it together, to watch someone be beheaded, and also to do all the things that was expected of that person, um, you know, take up the body. And um, so I put that away. I thought, no, I don't think that's, you know, and it, and it is a legend. We don't know if it's true or not if Catherine was there on the scaffold. But it's, it's, it seems to have a little bit enough evidence to, to be, yes, it could be possible that she was there. But later I actually found another um, piece of evidence that gave me a different birth year for Catherine. Catherine's one of these people that we don't know exactly when she was born. And this would have made her 14 at the time of Anne Boleyn's execution. And I thought, 12? I can't believe. But 14? Yes, I think I can see her there. And that opened my mind to imagine um, the last night of Anne Boleyn's life, which I wrote a little 10-minute um, play about. And after giving voice to Catherine in that play, of course, she wouldn't leave me alone like Tom once wouldn't leave me alone until I sort of took up the story and um, gave voice to her story about... And I always wanted to revisit the last months of Anne Boleyn's death anyway because Dear Heart had left me so many questions as to why Henry VIII had killed Anne Boleyn, this woman who clearly was the love of his life. He went from being besotted with Anne Boleyn to being a man who was willing to murder her, and he did murder her. That's how I see it. Um, and I wanted to really do justice to Henry VIII too. I felt to myself maybe I'm doing him a disservice by um, my dislike. Uh, so I'm a Libran. I, I do like to... Um, look at things with justice, you know, look at the rights and wrongs and and try and work out if someone's really, really deserves my dislike. <laughs> so I wanted to revisit the last months of Anne Boleyn's life anyway. And so Catherine Carey just was like handing me this opportunity to go back to Anne Boleyn's story and revisit those last months when, because um, the story opens when Anne Boleyn's pregnant and Catherine Carey goes to court to join her aunt, who she's, she adores from afar because she's with her mother, who her mother doesn't really live up to her expectations of what 
she wants for her mother. Her mother, she sees as being too much, too gentle, too too willing to, um, you know, just, you know, how a 14-year-old often thinks their mother is not really what they would want as a mother. They always sometimes, for, when you're a teenage girl, you, you look elsewhere for your role model, and this is what um, Catherine was doing from afar. So she gets sent to court, not that her mother really wants her to go to court because there's, there's all that history that, uh, that Mary Boleyn um, experienced when she was a teenager at court that, of course, she does not want her daughter to ever, ever face or experience. And, um, and Catherine Carey gets tossed into from the fry pan to the fire by going to court and discovering that Anne Boleyn's life is not as she thought it was and the relationship with Henry VIII at this stage is, is not a good relationship and everything is, you know, the, the pregnancy that Anne Boleyn had then, she knew that if things didn't go well for her, then it was going to be a, a hard ass to um, restore the relationship between her and Henry because he was already, he had his eyes on Jane Seymour. Um, of course, he, I don't think... Anne Boleyn would ever had expected to be cast into jail and executed. She probably was maybe thinking that the same destiny that Catherine of Aragon experienced of being basically imprisoned and shuddered from one place to another would have been her ultimate destiny, destiny if she didn't give Henry VIII that son. So anyway, that's so the story is about um, a girl growing up very quickly and um, discovering what life can be like in Tudor times. I think my favorite part of that book was the question of her paternity. Yeah. I loved what you did with that. And I don't want to spoil it for everybody because it was so well written, but that was wonderful. I love that you included that in the story. Yeah. Well, that was an important part of the actual story structure as well. And, of course, I do believe, I do believe that she is Henry VIII's bastard daughter. There's so much, um, when you look at the portraits of her and Elizabeth I, you can see the similarity. And the fact that they had that such a close relationship also gives it away, I think. What do you think? What do you think, Rebecca? That's just, it's so tough. Like, my instinct has always been that she is his daughter, um, for the same reasons that you say as well, when you look at the the portraits of them, you see the resemblance to Henry. Um, but then the the other pe- the other side of it, people always argue. Well, you know, their mothers were sisters, so the similarity may be there. I mean, we'll never know for certain, but I feel like she was. And then you wrote "Falling Pomegranate Seeds," and. With that book, you start early on in in Catherine of Aragon's life. Can you explain to the listeners maybe what her childhood was like? Oh, this is this is yes. It's I didn't realize that there's. I don't think there is any other book out there that explores her growing up years in the court of her mother, Queen Isabella of Castile. Um, that actually. Um, 
opened the door to me to discover that how little I knew about European history, especially because um, still in the Middle Evil time. So I had to do a lot of learning about that particular court. And um, Catherine grew up with her, in her mother's court because Castile was the m more important kingdom than Aragon. Um, she was the more powerful ruler than her husband. So Queen Isabel of Castile was the greater ruler. And um, in Catherine's childhood, she moved from place to place, as, as rulers often did. They, they didn't just leave themselves in in this particular time period rulers did like to go around their kingdom even if it's just in in Tudor times it was really just basically um, London and out of London uh, occasionally the monarchs would go a lot further but of course in this time we're we're talking about travel with um, horses and carts and litters and so travel was always a hard thing, but Queen Isabel could still, she really travelled a lot with her family. And this was also to do with the fa fact that this is the time when Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand of Aragon were pushing the Moors and also the Jews out of their kingdom. So when um, Catherine was born, she was actually born uh, when her her mother was had been visiting one of the battlefield, battlefields of the um, Holy War, as they called it. And the Holy War went on for um, most of Catherine's childhood. And um, Granada fell um, about, oh, I've forgotten, 14... I have to remember now. But I think it's, uh, it's um, around about the same time Christopher Columbus set sail, so it's 1492, but before that, also just after that, because was he backed? Because uh, I know Christopher Columbus actually, actually was there witnessing the four Granada, uh, but he was also making, making himself a, a real nuisance at the time, um, trying to get those ships so that he could explore and find the new world. So um, I'm not quite sure if it's was just before after my date so, yeah. I just I just googled it real quick and the date that came up for the fall of Granada is January 2nd 1492 yeah 1492 so I did remember it correctly so it's in that period of time that Christopher Columbus was still begging for the fleet that he needed to do his exploration so he was there when the the last kingdom of the Moors fell and Catherine was actually there as well because her mother believed that her children um, should witness these great moments in her family's history because, you know, this is what royal families did. They knew that the battle had been won. This was just a confirmation that, that the key would be handed over to Queen Isabel and her husband as the Moors left the kingdom and um, yeah, so it's a really quite sad. It's a very powerful part of the um, of Spanish history, and it's a sad part of Spanish history too because um, the Moors and the Jews were very much part of building this um, quite really fascinating kingdom that was um, beautiful architecture, 
um, there was a period of time, the golden period, which was in the I think the 12th or 13th century, when um, the Jews and the Moors and the Christians just got on with it. For, I think it was for a hundred years or so, and there was so much writing that was happening and art and architecture. So it's regarded as a golden um, period in um, Spanish history, but of course it all fell apart as humans uh, like to do, um, which is very sad. And at this point we've got this queen who is very Catholic and a woman. Her husband, I think, I'm, I'm more suspicious of his reasons for wanting this because, of course, they got a lot of wealth out of um, pushing their moors out of the kingdom and also the Jews out of the kingdom. They they got a lot of wealth out of this almost pseudo-similar. Um, you, can, you can use what happened with Henry VIII and, and um, him destroying all the monasteries. and So um, anyway, so Catherine w would have been, she was there to witness um, this amazing moment in her family's history with the, the Moors handing over the keys to the kingdom. So she also, um, yeah, so she would have grew, she grew up in beautiful places that were influenced by the Moorish architecture, um, they were more advanced um, culturally than the English. There was big shocks in store for Catherine when she goes to England. Um, they they believed in Castile to have the baths and they had, um, you know, the rooms with the big baths, not pools, I should say, not baths. So, you know, because the Moorish... Um, influences were very deep by this time and um, yeah so it was an amazing um, upbringing for her and she was um, very exposed to intellectuals at her mother's court. Her mother believed in educating all her children thoroughly because Isabel came to the throne as an 18 year old not expecting to ever be queen, and she was never taught to be queen. So she she actually arrived at the throne not knowing her Latin, which is the language of diplomacy, and that's when Beatrice Galindo comes into history. Um, she was employed by Queen Isabel to teach her Latin because um, Beatrice was famous for her um, ability to, as a teacher and um, and was known as the Lady of Latin. Uh, and then Beatrice continued to be employed as a tutor to the royal children. Speaking of the royal children, if I remember correctly, Catherine had three living siblings, two sisters and a brother? Yeah, she had, uh, there was a family of five. So it was four girls and one son. Wow. And what kind of relationship would you say she had with her siblings? Oh, I, I sort of imagine that um, I, I think later on how um, when Juana came to the court of Henry VII, how uh, eager Catherine was wanting to see her sister. I mean, that's a really quite very sad story because they were only allowed 
two hours together before they were separated and they never saw each other, of course, ever again. Um, she, she wrote to her family. Um, I'd love to get, I'd love to source her letters to her her siblings because she was a letter writer. So I think it was a close family and I think because the family were, were also united by a lot of grief as well because of they had um, the, their son, Juan, um, died as a 19-year-old. Um, and then the eldest girl, Isabel, who was actually 15 years older than Catherine, who I sort of imagine as being like a second mother to Catherine. It makes sense to me that she would have been acting like... I mean, I, I'm just going from my own life experience and my... Um, my, my mother had a sister who was 11 years older than her and they were very, very close throughout the, their lives. And when um, my mother was a little child, um, my aunt was like that second mother. So, you know, I'm sort of imagine, imagining that it, Isabel would have been the same. Um, and she married, she was very close to her mother. Um, her mother really wanted her to stay in Castile and marry someone in Castile, but she ended up marrying um, a prince of um, Portugal, and that marriage didn't um, last very long because um, Afonso, her husband, um, died less than a year after their marriage, and Isabel then came back to court, and she refused to consider any other marriage for about five years, and because... Um, the mother really wanted her daughter to be with her. Um, yeah, they just let it ride for five years and then basically she had to get married again. So she got married again to um, the king of Portugal, Manuel. Yeah, I tell, so I imagine it being a very close family. Well, one of the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier um, was Catherine's English roots, which I feel a lot of people don't realize that she had. Can you expand on that for us? Oh, yes, yes. She was um, descended from Catherine of Lancaster, who was the daughter of John of Gaunt. Is that how you pronounce Gaunt? That's how I pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, John of Gaunt was Edward III's one of his youngest sons. Edward III actually had a huge family and he had quite a few sons. I think John was the third youngest, if my memory serves me correct. And um, he was he was a very, very able man, a uh, very wealthy man, and he very much wanted to have um, a crown. But, of course, with having so many people... Um, before him for the crown of England, he knew he had no chance of ever becoming king. Um, so he went across to Europe and he married a Castilian princess, uh, Constantine, I think her name was Constantine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so Catherine Lancaster was their daughter, if I remember correctly. Um, so there was only one child to that relationship, but that was the Catherine of Lancaster was um, um, Catherine's um, great great was a great grandmother. Yeah, so it wasn't too far away from where Catherine was. And 
I don't know if that's the reason why um, Isabel and her children, her daughters, her whole family were um, appeared to be not all of them. I think Guana looks like she was dark haired by some of her portraits, but all the rest of them seem to have had that lovely um, reddish golden hair and um, Isabel actually had greeny bluey eyes and um, Catherine's eyes were grey blue so I get really frustrated when I see uh, yet another program that portrays Catherine of Aragon as being this dark skin dark haired um, Spaniard and I think that's you know we sh they should know by now that she was she was as she was a fair she was English rose complexion, um, and yeah. So it's, then that may have come from her ancestor Catherine of Lancaster. It's almost like in these as 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 an example, um, the Tudors um, that was on Showtime. That's one of the examples where they did the dark hair and everything. And it's just it does it comes off very lazy. Like how much would it have taken to have her wear a wig or to have her dye her hair? Yet yeah. Instead, but at least in the Spanish Princess, that was more realistic, which I liked. Yes. Yes, I like that. So back to falling pomegranate seeds. It's been a it's been a while since I've read it, but if I remember correctly, um, that book ended with um, Catherine about to depart to England, or she did depart to England. Can you refresh my memory? She was just about to leave. She was looking at her homeland and looking at. Um, she was at the Alhambra and um, casting her eyes on the beauty of that place and. And also aware that she's leaving her mother forever, which is, yeah, it's very sad to write that scene. So, so sad. But yeah. now we have the continuation of the story coming up this summer. Is that right? Yes. So yes. tell us a little bit more about what we should expect from the second book. All right. Yes. Well, this one, um, it's, it's the um, point of view character is Maria. Um, Maria de Salinas. I don't know how to pronounce her surname. How would you pronounce that? Uh, I always say Maria de, de Salinas. There we go. There we go. You you probably learned you probably learned Spanish. I failed these. No. I, oh my gosh! I, I did not. I learned German. <laughs> I write these books with foreign languages included. We have no idea how to pronounce. Them words which is really which makes it really hard when I'm having to do a reading I think oh I now I am forced to learn how to actually say it <laughs> it's okay yes it's just me that when I was at high school I did very very badly in French and I think it scarred me for the rest of my life <laughs> I've got this in my head that I can't say any anyway um all right, so it's it's told through Maria's point of view, and um, yeah, it, it actually takes the story. I've chosen what I've chosen to do. It's actually my longest book ever, which which I'm really. I was almost tempted because, like I said at the beginning, initially I had thought this book, this story about Catherine, needed to be a trilogy, and. Um, it's a big story. 
it's a really big story. But when I was writing um, the new book and I was thinking, do I divide it up? But really it's one whole story and to do that would do a disservice to the actual story. And I like the fact that I'm going to have a nice thick book as part of my my, my collection of books that I've, <laughs> I've written. Um, so it's, a, it's going to be about 160000 by the time I do the acknowledgement, uh, acknowledgement page. And so it's, it's – I'm not quite sure how many pages that works out to be, but I think it might be about four fifty five hundred. 500. Anyway. It's, wow, that's amazing. 160,000 words is a lot of words. That's amazing. Congratulations. Oh, yes. It's it's great. I, I was, yeah, but it's a big story. So, and also because it was such a big story, I had to make um, a decision. Um, do, well, what do I do? Do I do the whole story of Catherine's life? And I thought to myself, you know what? I'd like to end. Um, what I've done, I've actually have gone to epilogues of her death because, as we know, there's this beautiful story of Maria going to be with Catherine at her death. And that is actually one of the reasons why I started this work years and years ago because I read that story about Maria um, standing at the the, the drawn moat um, demanding to be let into the, the castle um, to be with her friend um, when her friend, she knew her friend was dying. And, of course, she didn't have permission to be there and um, and it was probably the only the, the thing is that she actually injured herself by riding. And she was a lady of 50. She rode her horse in winter from London to where Catherine was and... Um, so, you know, that's, that is an amazing story of love and devotion. So um, I had to include that part as the epilogue. Um, but the, the story of Catherine of Aragon's story proper, um, I've concluded at the, um, the Field of the Cloth of Gold because I could do a lot of foreshadowing about things in the story. So, yeah. One of the questions I have for you about that early time, um, those early years that she had in England was, you know, she was betrothed to Arthur Tudor um, yes. and then they were married. But before Arthur, was she betrothed to anybody else ever? No. It was no. just him. She was betrothed to him at three. So um, he was only two, of course. He was, he was um, nine months younger than her. Uh and, yeah, so she was, from the time she was a child, she was brought up to be um, his wife and referred to as the Princess of Wales at her mother's court and um, and educated accordingly. Um, yeah, so, yeah, never, she, never, ever any other person. She had such an amazing life. What a perfect character for a book. So much happened in her life. And, and one of the topics that I feel like will continue forever, and I know you're going to love that I'm asking this question, is <laughs> did, did they or didn't they, did Arthur and Catherine consummate their marriage? What do you think? 
you have to read the book, my darling. Um, <laughs> ah, you have to read the book. Uh, well, I've, I've, worked, I've worked out how I feel about it. I love it. And, and um, yeah, and I've written it in the book. So, um, yeah. That's one of the beauties of... I think to myself is that looking at portraits of, of Arthur, he was definitely not the same guy as what Henry VIII was at the same age. Henry VIII at um, 16 was able to joust and he, he did a demonstration of jousting for um, Philip the Fair when um, Juana and who was then the Queen of Castile, this one, uh, the sister of Catherine of Aragon and um, and Philip, her husband, were um, stuck in a storm and they were actually driven to the coast of England and basically Henry VII kept them kind of hostage as guests for a little bit until we got a few things signed. I think that's a pretty good way of getting things done as the politicians just keep them captured. It for... sounds like sounds like the Tudor method. <laughs> that was the Tudor method. Um and um yeah, so he, Henry the Eighth did a lot of demonstrating how strong and able he was because to be jousting, you you're gonna be you're gonna be very strong armed to hold your lance and 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 also it's quite a dangerous sport arthur though um there's no there's no there's he was a good archer which of course that takes upper body strength but there was no story about him ever doing jousting which is very interesting and um you would have thought if he was a strong young man and he was only of course, uh, 15 when he married um, Catherine of Aragon. Then when he married her, when they had so many things happening, then he would have been doing a demonstration of how strong he was. Can you imagine, you know, if you put Henry VIII in, in his brother's shoes, you could not, not you, you would just have to have him doing all sorts of things like jousting because he was always wanting to show how strong he was. This is Henry VIII. Well, Arthur, on the other hand, there's a lot of protection happening with him, which does make me wonder how strong he really was. Mm. He doesn't look very strong in the portraits at all. No, not at all. He, lo he looks very, very thin. And, um, yeah, he actually, one portrait I'm thinking of, maybe you're thinking of the same one, he looks very ill. Pale. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. And actually, um, one of, when they were doing a lot of information gathering for um, the divorce, if you want to call it the divorce of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, Henry VIII, always at that stage was saying, I was never married to her anyway, so it's not a divorce. It's just recognising that I'm right, that this was never a marriage. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of information gathering um, happening on behalf of both Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, and Catherine's people actually went across to um, Castile to get evidence from the people who were still alive when she, um, she came across as a, 
a girl who was not even quite 16. She turned 16 actually in England in December. Uh, she arrived um, October, I think it was. Yeah. So um, the doctor said um, her, the doctor that was serving her at the time that she came over um, actually had um, told his son about how weak um, Arthur was and his concerns about Arthur. Well, I think you answered my question without realizing you answered my question. <laughs> did oh, they or goodness. did they? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've given it away, have I? But I've set it up in the right way. Um, yeah, so I hope I've made it believable. Well, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. So can you quick let everybody know um, when you expect the book to be available to the public and maybe where they can find it when it comes out? June the 1st is the date that I've got down. That's the day I'm planning to launch it. I'm self-publishing this, which is a very brave act. You got Um, this. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, thank you. I have been published with three great little publishers in my lifetime and little publishers are fantastic and I will never regret going that way but I do feel that um, there there is a point where um, you can just do all these things yourself now and um, I've learnt a lot over the time since Dear Heart was published in 2002 There's so much more power given to writers now to take control of their own destiny and, um, yeah, to be able to drive it myself I think is a far better choice. And you already have a great following. So, you know, you can sell them just by promoting them yourself and and all that goes into that. Thank you so much. Really lovely. That's lovely for you to say that. Well, we have come to um, the end of the show where I ask you my fun questions. So are you ready? All right. (laughs) Fun questions. (laughs) You'll like these. All right. If I could offer you a time machine and you could safely travel back in time to observe a place in time, when would you choose? Oh, it would have to be the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. I would love to be there, even though it was it was a very cold day and it snowed and everything, but I'd just love to be there for her coronation. I love that. And now the next one is, which of the six wives of Henry VIII is your favorite? Oh, my God. What a question. Oh, don't you know I'm torn between two queens? I was was thinking about this today. Oh, goodness, if I had to go and serve Anne Boleyn or or Catherine of Aragon, what would I do? I think I'll just have to go and find a nunnery and join, just go there and say, I can't make a decision. I'm serving God. Oh, my goodness. Okay, how about this? I know mine changes every month. I have a different favorite one. At this very moment, who's your favorite? Catherine of Aragon. Perfect. Thank you. Because I'm writing about her and I can't, I mean, that's the thing, is that you're always more devoted to the person that you're, engage with and in, in, in trying to embody and yeah 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 
What is the most recent tutor film, tutor series, or book that you've consumed? Oh, my goodness. You know, the thing is with me, this is really hard. Um, with novels, with tutor novels, I, I kind of avoid reading them because I want to have my own construction of um, of of in my imagination. So I don't really want to have another writer, um, um, yeah, have influence their... your book. Exactly, exactly. So what 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 have I been reading Tudor wise lately? I've been um, um, I, I, this is this is. One of my favourite writers is Elizabeth Elizabeth Gooch, and I've been reading her Towers in the Mist, which is definitely Tudor. She's just a lovely. She's just a lovely writer, and I, she's my one of my comfort writers. And it's, as you probably know, Australia's been going through terrible times, and of course, this January's just been one bad thing after another. You know, we've now got the virus thing, so I just needed a a book that gave me some comfort. So yeah, the tower, the tower, the towers in the mist, which is set in the time of Elizabeth the first and um, her visit to Oxford in the um, 1560s. So it's, it's, it's a very sweet story. Mm, I'll have to add that to my list. It's a very sweet story. It's got Philip Sidney in it, and it's got Water Raleigh. <laughs> oh, yeah. no! It's it's just a very sweet story. She's very spiritual, and um, yeah, it's and it's just she speaks a lot about you know uh, she's she's a woman of faith, so the, the, her stories are always constructed through her sense of um, God and spirit and yes it's a really lovely comfort story what is something that people might be surprised to learn about you oh my goodness gracious me yeah would you like my example (laughs) one thing that people might be surprised to learn about me and it's such a weird one is i am a horrible lip reader horrible my good I think I am too (laughs) (laughs) I am too actually yeah I have a hearing loss problem which which I wish I could have um the ability to read lips because sometimes it gets very frustrating if I have a um a loss of hearing on one side of me so people are talking to um on that side of me it's it's a very convenient hearing loss when when I'm trying to cope with my husband snoring, because I can just have my hearing, my my bad ear up. I, I sleep on the side of my good ear, and so I can't hear anything, <laughs> which is great. That's a benefit, right? <laughs> there we go. There we go. You got, um, I've got a hearing loss on my right side. <laughs> I love it. And. and- <laughs> Then last, lastly, where can everybody um, find you? Where are you on social media? Do you have a website? And where are your books available? Uh, uh, I have a website. It's www.wendyjdunn.com. It has links to all my novels on that on that page. Um, I have um, a presence on Facebook. I'm also, I love Twitter. 
Um, I probably love Twitter more than I love Facebook because it's a challenge. It's sort of like a writing exercise for me to be able to write something that makes sense in only a, 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 a I think they're actually up there 144 characters, but anyway. Yeah. I feel um, like it's 160, but it's still a small amount. That's right. So you've got to, you've got to really try and work out how do I make this, you know, make it sense and also, you know, yeah, make it, yeah. Anyway, so I enjoy that sort of my my writing puzzle for the day is to do at least one tweet that's actually not sharing tweets. Cause I, one thing I love about Twitter is that, um, of course, I'm following lots of people who are also Tudor lovers like yourself, and and I can I can share um, your tweets and and also have a look at what what's happening in the Tudor world. So it's nice. Mm. Well, well, and also I'm on Goodreads, and yeah, I will be sure to include all of the links so that if you are interested in looking up Wendy and touching base with her, that will be at your fingertips. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was so amazing to talk with you. Thank you, darling. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to finally hear your voice. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.